Friends, our scripture reading is from Romans 8, which is a pinnacle of Paul's writing. Uh, unless God intervenes in my life again, and at this point I make no guarantees, uh, this is probably my last Sunday to serve in parish ministry as I move to other things. I'll talk about that in a moment too. Here's what I love most about serving a specific congregation. We never get to have a Sunday set apart, protected, made special. Our worship can never be a museum piece or an heirloom. The plans were all set for today. It's my last Sunday. You're gracious to recognize me and have a reception, and I appreciate that. Plus, you're gearing up for the fall, and you're talking about electing a search committee and all those things. But we don't get today to be a special, protected, standalone day. And churches never do, and that's a gift. We gather for worship for one reason and one reason only, to be equipped to be the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. What happened in Charlottesville yesterday was not just bigotry and hate. It was not just violence. It was certainly not violence on all sides, as our government told us last night. It was not free speech run amok. It was white supremacy a primal stain on our society going back earlier than our Constitution, made manifest once again by those who want to continue to privilege blacks over whites, or whites over blacks, whites over Jews, whites over the other, whites over anyone who by how they live and what they believe threatens whiteness. This is an affront to citizens. It's also a direct challenge to Christians, those of us who follow the crucified and risen Lord. White supremacy says whites get everything. And everybody else, blacks, Jews, the other, are here to serve us and are disposable. This is not the world God created and redeemed in love. So we get to come to worship today and be equipped. And that work doesn't care it's my last Sunday or that you're gearing up for the fall. We need to be equipped with God's love and to resist this evil which is dragging us down. We don't gather for worship to obtain our individual spiritual commodities so we can go live a life of relative peace and comfort. We are here to be the community formed and sustained by the risen Christ that resists fears, resists lies, resists this evil and is equipped by God to show forth the love and justice of Jesus Christ. In that spirit, how wonderful. What a gift today we have this reading from Romans 8, which is an unsentimental, equipping text about the powerful love of God. And so Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart and knows what is in the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those who God called, he also justified. And those whom God justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, 
will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all day long we are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through God who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. The renowned writer and actor Sam Shepard, who died last week, famously hated endings. As a playwright, he felt the temptation toward resolution toward wrapping up the package seems to be a terrible trap. Temptations abound to mangle Romans 8, to fit our needs, to have it make sense of things, to have life fit all neatly together because of it, to see a coherent plan in everything, even though this is never the Bible's aspiration nor faith's promise. There's a church leader somewhere in America this week who said that bombing North Korea is God's will because it would settle things. Really? The news from Charlottesville and my beloved alma mater yesterday is horrific and heartbreaking and brutal and wrong. Those who love God were injured both physically and spiritually yesterday. What's working together for good there, really? In the 19th century, congregations all over this country heard sermons about slavery that assured the congregants that everything would be all right because God would make it all good. Really. All things work together for good for those who love God. On the face of it, I respectfully disagree that all things work together for good when faced with devastating illnesses of those we love. We would not quote this to someone in the grip of an addiction. We should not dream of speaking this into situations of loss or despair or hopelessness. You cannot conceive, nor can I, of the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. Graham Greene wrote that in one of his novels. That is closer to the Bible's truth than our manipulation of familiar texts to meet our needs. God's love is real, it's pervasive, it's steadfast, it's trustworthy, but often far from fitting everything together neatly, that love is appallingly strange to us. What is Paul doing here in Romans 8? Paul begins here by using the word everything, as in everything works together for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. And Paul ends here by using the word nothing. Nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Both the everything, all things working for good, 
and that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God reasonably on any given day could lead us to say, really? Because between that everything and that nothing, we live our lives. We participate in the life of the world where the love of God seems in very short supply sometimes. There are days when the reverse makes more sense that nothing is working together for good. And everything in the world is at work to separate us from God's love. So has Paul stopped digging down to a faith that is genuinely sustained through pain and death and loss? And instead, has Paul thrown his lot in with the sentimental composers of greeting card platitudes and the straightforward deniers of harsh reality? How we understand this text hinges on how we see the word good and how deeply we can experience truly the love of God. Here's how we usually think of God. I know we never say this out loud, but I've talked to enough of you. I think this is what we're all thinking. We know that we're not perfect and that life isn't always easy or fair and we can't have everything we want, but that doesn't stop us from wishing everything would change. So God becomes the name for all, how all that changes. Because of Jesus, we hope to get everything we could possibly want forever. That's the deal. God becomes a device that secures for us what we somehow feel entitled to. So when we get sick, or when relationships fall apart, or our financial situation collapses, or our future prospects look thin, we think the system has failed. Either we haven't been keeping our side of the bargain, or God hasn't been keeping God's side of the bargain. But Paul is saying, that's never the bargain. When he says all things work together for good, good does not mean a decent home, a healthy family, a rewarding job, or a long life. Paul has a very specific definition of good. Good for Paul, is looking like Jesus. Paul gives five verbs to describe the way we come to look like Jesus here. God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Paul says here, those whom God foreknew, God also predestined. And let's face it, as soon as we hear predestined, we think of predestination, we're off to the races. Let's listen to the whole sentence. Paul says those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. In other words, that's the whole purpose of God among human beings. It's what it's always been about, making us and remaking us look like Jesus. And faith means cooperating with that process. That's what good means. That's what we hope for. That's the bargain. We get to look like Jesus. Nothing about having a healthy family or a long and happy life. Nothing about having comfort or having a growing church or a growing bank account or safety from loss or protection from pain. Jesus didn't have any of those things. Nothing about a rewarding job or a wholesome partner. Nothing about a decent home or popular friends. Nothing about worldly success or at least the lack of embarrassment. 
Nothing about protection, security, or absolute clarity. Jesus didn't have any of those things. This is the deal. We are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was homeless, rejected, betrayed, tortured, and executed. We can't be surprised as Christians if we get a taste of that too. In fact, if we don't, we have to wonder if we're still part of the bargain, if we're still cooperating with the process. The first few verses of Jeremiah, which Claire read, opens with this call of God to Jeremiah. Calls are a big deal in Scripture. Jeremiah has a right to be so honored and so excited until he hears the deal. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Nothing in the call about honor, popularity, success, piety, protection, nothing about safety, progress, or peace. Pluck up, pull down, destroy, overthrow, build, plant. Six actions, four negative, two positive, which by the way is just about the proportion of what Jeremiah experienced in his life. A life without status quo or comfort or equilibrium, but a life for and with God and a life that foreshadowed the life of Jesus. That is Paul's biblical understanding of good, and that is Paul's lived experience of good. That's how we can faithfully together comprehend all things work together for good for those who love God. Of course, understanding that faithfully then relies on the second part of this, do we need a deep experience of what the love of God truly is in our life? My father was a preacher who believed it was important to memorize verses of the Bible. Craig Barnes, president of Princeton Seminary, wrote recently, on Mondays he would give my older brother and me a little card with a verse written out. We were expected to recite it from memory by the end of the week when our father would point at one of us and say, Romans 8, 28, go. And if I didn't start chirping away for all things work together for good, for those who love God, we'd have to leave the table. By the time I was a teenager, Barnes says, I'd memorized a lot of the Bible. I never paid attention to the words, but they were all in me. When I was not quite 17, my parents' marriage broke apart. My mother left to li live with uh, her sister in Dallas. And my father left the church he had started and simply disappeared. My big brother dropped out of college, got a construction job, helped me finish high school. Together we got by. Oddly, my brother and I didn't talk about how our world had crumbled. Mostly that was because we couldn't afford emotion. We were too worried about the next meal and a place to stay. The following Christmas, my brother and I decided we would go to Dallas to visit our mother. We didn't have money for a plane ticket or a bus ticket, so we did what people sometimes do when they're not thinking clearly. We decided to hitchhike from Long Island to Dallas. By the end of the first day, we were somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia on Interstate 81. It was snowing hard, the sun was long gone, and we stood on the entrance ramp with our thumbs sticking out on a road that we later learned had been closed for hours. 
We stayed put on the side of that dark road in a blizzard. After months of hustling to make our life work, my brother and I were finally forced to talk to each other. We took a stab at describing our situation, but that didn't go well after I mentioned that we were basically disposable to the people who were supposed to love us. We tried to pass the time by quizzing each other about baseball statistics, but neither of us knew any baseball statistics, so that didn't go well. <laughs> then my brother pointed to me and said, Romans 8.28. And we spent much of that night asking each other to recite Bible verses we had memorized but never really heard. At one point, I found myself saying the precious lines of Isaiah 43, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you. Barnes says, by the time I finished, I was crying. That night, a passage about the sustaining love of God, casting out fear, became the turning point in my life. When you find God at the bottom, he says, it's it is possible to enjoy life's highs and lows without fearing that you'll ever fall beneath the love of the Savior. No one can be fully alive. No one can lead without getting rid of that fear. It's a potent temptation, however, in everyone I have ever known to think that there is a way, there is a, we're smart people, there's a way to experience God's love that will exempt us from the fear, exempt us from the hardship, exempt us from the loss. I am here to tell you after 35 years of parish ministry that I have yet to meet a single person who has a magical formula to God's love except through the fear, except through the hardship, except through the loss. It's through all of it that we get to resemble Jesus Christ. And there are no exceptions. And there are no shortcuts. In that light, Paul exhaustively then talks us through no less than 17 kinds of exceptions we might come up with on why we think we're an unusually difficult place and deserve a pass. Here's the 17 as fast as I can say them. Hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, death, anything else in all creation. <laughs> Hardship, distress, persecution. You could say these are predicaments we find ourselves in through our own mistakes or the trouble that comes at us through bad luck or the ill will of others. Now, that seems pretty comprehensive. There are 14 more. Famine and nakedness, lack of our two most basic needs, peril or sword, danger from adverse circumstances or violent attack, death and life, pretty much covering most eventualities, I'd say. Then there's angels and rulers. That is to say, those who are in charge in this world and those who are in charge in the next. Then things present and things to come, everything our imagination can comprehend and everything our imagination cannot comprehend. 
And finally, powers and everything else in all creation just in case we left anything out. On this list, though, is everything Jesus himself was exposed to. Hardship, distress, persecution, hunger, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, and all the rest. Paul gives us here a list of everything Jesus went through and saying there is nothing we could go through that Jesus hasn't gone through before us. By the end of Paul's list, we are exhausted, but we've also been stripped of all our exceptions. Well, almost all, except perhaps one more. I believe in every room I've ever been in, There's a lurking suspicion in the hearts of many that the problem of being separated from God isn't one of these 17 things. It is that God has turned away from you, that God is punishing you, that God has given up on you, that God doesn't like you anymore, that God doesn't like who you are or who you've become or some status you have or that God is judging the way you live or God is angry with you or God has lost patience with you. Paul knows all about this last lingering fear. It is the most isolating fear of all. But Paul shapes his whole argument here to insist that this fear is finally holy, utterly groundless. God isn't against us. God isn't against any of us. God is for us. God is for all of us. Why else would Jesus have gone through hell and high water for us? Jesus' death is proof that God is for us. Jesus' resurrection is proof truly that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Here's my list, Paul says. Bring on yours. But also, if the point in life, then or today, is not to have a designer degree, home, job, family, spouse, leisure time, friendship circle, church, or fabulous experiences to post for all to see. If the point of life is to look like Jesus, then this is the kind of hell or high water you can expect to go through if you're going to end up looking like Jesus. If you're in distress and you feel like God has broken the bargain that was supposed to make you permanently content or safe, you're wrong. There never was such a bargain. The bargain was that you become like Jesus. If you're facing hardship and you think it's because God is against you, you're wrong. God is for you. Always was ever shall be for you, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing, 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 nothing. God is for you every step. And Jesus has faced everything you have faced. And you were with God from the very beginning of things, and you are now, And you always will be. And I got to tell you, being with God in hardship 
is always better than being separate from God in comfort. Raymond Carver died 30 years ago at the age of 50 after a hard, tumultuous, tortured life that after he got clean and sober, offered him just one decade of peace and love before he died of a brain tumor. His last poem they found after he died was just a fragment. It's his epitaph. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. And God says, of course, Nothing was ever going to keep you from feeling beloved in my creation. A kindred spirit of Ray Carver, Flannery O'Connor, died at the age of 39 after suffering terribly from lupus for years and years. In a letter to a friend not long before she died, she wrote, I can, with one eye squinted, take it all as a blessing. Of course she did. Because her deep, hard experience of the love of God led her to know that all things work together to let her become like Jesus. And in a world where nothing can ever separate us from the amazing, mysterious, appallingly strange, powerful, steadfast, penetrating love of God, I am here to tell you blessings, blessings are everywhere. 